Hey everyone, we've got a great episode lined up with historian and educator Dr. Lois Lucas. But before we get to that, we've got a new blog series out now on mountaineermedia.org, Pitying the Rich, Should West Virginia Axe the Income Tax? It's the first of a three-part series which dives into both the pros and cons of abolishing the tax. Cooper, certainly one of the hot button issues in West Virginia right now. Yeah, it certainly is. You know, it's a fascinating story. And, you know, we wanted to get together with the author of this blog for a few minutes to discuss. So Mm -hmm. right now we're actually joined by Sierra, who's a tax attorney and contributor for the Mountaineer Media Podcast. So good morning, Sierra. How are you? Hey, doing pretty well. How are you? We are doing fantastic. Fantastic. So tell us, you know, why did you decide to write this piece? So as you know, tax is my background. Um, However, tax is also in everything. It's something that a lot of people contribute, either they pay it or they have some idea about it. Uh, But the problem is it's the thing that most people know the least about. And when I decided to join Mountaineer Media and write articles, my goal was to put tax in a much more friendly language. I wanted people to be able to read an article and understand the basics in a layperson way that was able to communicate to a wide audience. So when I heard that they were attempting to eliminate the income tax in West Virginia, that was my thought. I was like, well, everybody pays this, but does anyone really know what happens if it were to be gone? And I think that answer was no. So I think that this is a timely article. I think it's something that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to. And I think that it's going to be able to reach a wide audience, not just West Virginians. I think this could apply across the board because there are a lot of other states that are attempting to do this as well. So this is just something for everyone. And what kind of stood out to you the most? Because this is very, you know, it's, it's got some sex appeal to it, as you kind of put in, in your piece. Um, you know, when people, when they say, hey, we're going to get rid of the income tax, everybody that kind of, you know, everybody that's in a, a comfortable position is like, oh, gung-ho for it. But, you know, what what really stood out to you? Because there are certainly plenty of pros and cons, good and bad, about doing so. So as I mentioned in my article, um, a lot of things need to go into that discussion. A lot of decisions need to be made when it comes to the income tax, because in states like West Virginia, where it's such a large part of the revenue, you have to make that gap up. Um, unless you're willing to sacrifice things, sacrifice, pay, you know, sacrifice programs, sacrifice things that the government pays for, you have to make that up somehow. Yeah. And I think the biggest problem is you have to look at who is supporting it. You know, Jim Justice is a billionaire. Uh, Gordon Gee came out and was sort of neutral, but also seemed to support it. Uh, Gordon Gee is a multimillionaire. You know, so those people who have responsibilities to the state might be acting in their self-interest on this one. I'm not saying whether they are or not. They might be doing it for the right reasons. Like uh, the incoming Senate president, President Blair, he wants to do it for the right reasons. He says he wants 400,000 people over 10 years to come into West Virginia. Mm-hmm. The income tax might be a great way to do that. However, I think with our state and our unique situation, we're bottom of the barrel for a lot of things. And we have to ask what we're willing to give up. What are we willing to lose? So Sierra, you, you mentioned a good point there was that sacrifice, right? I mean, with, with this type of implementation, if it did go into effect, there's been a number of sacrifices, um, both that would be pretty clear early on and then some that would maybe not be as clear. But something that really has gotten some people upset is the threatening the Promise Scholarship um, because that's such a fundamental, I think, thing in West Virginia. I mean, I was a Promise Scholarship recipient. Um, it, you know, paid a good portion of my education. Um, it seems like that is an issue that, it just doesn't seem like we're embracing youth and it really would be something that you'd want to um, say you're you know, against, I guess, if that makes sense. So I think the Promise Scholarship operates to keep one, it operates for two reasons. One, it keeps really intelligent people in West Virginia, because if you get over a 22 on your ACT, it pays for almost all your in-state tuition. And then typically WVU or Marshall will cover the difference. Yeah. So you're going to school for absolutely free. But it also operates to give low income students the ability to go to college, especially when you come from low income families, you're not going to want to subject your child to debt. You're not going to. You're not going to say, yes, this is so worth it. Take out, you know, $30,000 for four years and hopefully get a job that'll be able to pay that off. Yeah. Make sure to go check it out now. Mountaineermedia.org. Sierra, thank you and uh, keep on rocking. All right. Thanks so much, guys. 
The art of storytelling. Well, that's something that's old as time. Passing down life's lessons, sharing long ago tales, and educating the next generation is something that's uniquely human. So if you want to effectively pass on that sacred knowledge to the youth, understanding how to retell history in the form of a story may make those lessons stick. Yeah, Dr. Lois Lucas is our guest this week on the podcast. She spent nearly three decades at West Virginia State University storytelling about American history, women's history, and African-American studies. Lucas is likely one of the state's foremost experts on black history, having successfully defended her dissertation in 2005, African-American women's activism in West Virginia. So in this episode, you'll learn about influential black West Virginians, You'll hear the passion in Lucas's voice around education, and you'll come to know someone who has dedicated their entire life to honoring the legends of the past while simultaneously investing in our future by educating our youth. So please gather around our metaphorical campfire and allow yourself to become immersed in Dr. Lucas's stories. We were honored to have her share some of them and her time with us. does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. Okay, Dr. Lois Lucas is our guest today, and good morning. I know that uh, we are experiencing some uh, winter weather advisories up here in West Virginia, and and up on in this part of the region, but uh, you have escaped. You spent a long <laughs> period of your life in West Virginia. You have now escaped down to North Carolina. I hope things are going well in this uh, retirement life of yours. It, things are going very well. I must admit, I thoroughly love retirement. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, okay, so what about retirement's been so great? Because I know some people say that they they're afraid to retire because they'll have nothing to do. Not, not you know, true, what's... not true, not true. <laughs> Um, what's good, I don't sit around eating bonbons and watching soap operas, so <laughs> that's out for me. Um, uh, when I first retired, I started uh, volunteering at a nursing home, and I used to read uh, to uh, one of the seniors there because her eyes had grown dim, and so she could not read. Uh, and I read the Bible to her because that's what she wanted me to read every, every time I went. And then we, uh, I and some other volunteers from the church that I attend, we played bingo with the uh, residents. And you've never been in a bingo game until you've gotten in with senior citizens <laughs> because they can be grouchy. <laughs> <laughs> Fiercely competitive, I can imagine. Very much so. Oh, very much so. But those were fun times. And when COVID hit, of course, we could not do that anymore. But I also oversee uh, the medical uh, responsibilities for my mom and my dad. And my brother and I, we take turns shifting and getting them to doctor's appointments and, and things of that nature, you know, so I'm always available for them, you know, and, uh, uh, and then, as I said, I walk every day, anywhere from five to six miles uh, a day, a friend of, I, of mine and I, we walk. So there are a lot of things that I, 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 keep, I keep myself busy. Let's put it that way. I yeah. do keep myself busy. Yeah. And yeah. I read a lot, just finished uh, a book, it's, it's sort of like a book club with a discussion on a, a book titled Cast by Isabel Wilkerson with a group of, of about 11 ladies, which is really, really interesting. So, you know, I, I'm doing something. You're moving, shaking. I like it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I kind of mentioned it, but I said that you had spent a large part of your life here in West Virginia. You, you were, you'd almost taught at West Virginia State University for nearly three decades. Were you here before then? How did you kind of initially make your way to West Virginia? And then maybe you can walk us through how you ended up teaching at West Virginia State. Well, I received my undergrad and graduate degrees at North Carolina Central University in Durham. And then afterwards, of course, I'm, I'm putting out feelers looking for jobs. I started out teaching a seventh grade at a, a junior high school in North Carolina and then got an opportunity to serve as a substitute for a professor who was on sabbatical. So that's how I got to stay. It was just one of the applications that I put in everywhere yeah. and got. And so 
I went and uh, served that one year, that uh, two semesters at state. Then at the end of that year, that professor decided that he, I don't know to this day who it was, but he decided he was not coming back. And so that kind of put me in that position. And I worked at state for uh, a second year. Then the guy said, well, he was coming back and it got to be this strange controversy. So I decided, I think I need my own job. I applied at IBM in Charleston, West Virginia, got that job okay, <laughs> and worked there for 15 and a half years, but always promised that if I ever got an opportunity to go back to teaching, that is what I would do. And that's what I did. In 1993, I got a chance to go back to state and I went back. After being laid off at IBM, of course, because they were downsizing by that time. Okay, yeah. So, so worked out. And what were you doing at IBM? Was it in the run? Because you you went on to teach like history, like Black West Virginian history, U.S. history. Like what was that? Was that a big transition from what you were doing? Was it more like a corporate role with IBM, or was that just something you were just like always interested in? You're like, you know what? If I do go into back into education, it's going to be about history based stuff. Yeah, no, my major was in history and, and I have degrees in undergrad, graduate and my PhD all in history and mm -hmm. some phase of American history. Um, so I never lost that interest, mm -hmm. uh, always had it. At IBM, I was, uh, the title was systems engineer uh, where marketing reps will sell the equipment. You go in and make sure it gets installed correctly and you train. Gotcha. So in that sense, it was a form of teaching that way. Okay. And then sometimes we would have classes at IBM where the customer came in and then I would teach those classes. So I was still sort of in a teaching like role, but then, you know, as time went on, you know, it, it, you were required to do more than just teach you know, in terms of uh, mm -hmm. troubleshooting uh, problems with equipment and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you end up going back to state, where did you immediately start teaching history again? And my, I guess where my question is going is, when did you start getting into developing the African-American studies courses that you wrote the curriculums for? How did that kind of happen? Evolve, yeah. yeah. Uh, when I got back, when I applied at state, at first, uh, the vice president of academic affairs told me that there were there was no teaching position available, and certainly not in the Department of History at that time. Uh, that was the only department I was interested in, uh, and um, so she said, "We have some. We have a, a new computer lab that's being opened for the students, and we need somebody to run it because all of the equipment are, it will be IBM personal computers." That's hilarious. So, and I thought, okay. So she said, uh, can you teach that? And of course, I, I said, oh, yes, I can teach that. And I thought, <laughs> I never worked on that particular machine. <laughs> Guess I'll learn. And she said, and maybe we can use you as an adjunct if necessary. But then uh, all of a sudden that summer, uh, she and the dean called me back and said, believe it or not, we ended up with a vacancy in the history department. Uh, and she said, we need to fill it and we need to fill it quickly here. And so I thought, well, I'm available. And so that's how I got back. And when I got there, the vice president said to me that there were African-American history courses that had been taught there, but as time went on and professors moved on, um, for some reason, there, they weren't being taught anymore. Mm -hmm. And so she said, it's an HBCU. We need African-American history courses being taught at an HBCU. Can you develop such a course? And I thought, oh yeah, I can. And so I did. I started out with just a general American, African-American history class. And then as time moved on, I decided just overall is not enough. We need to break it down. And so then I decided to break it down. And I, didn't, I did not do this all at once, but I did end up developing a, a course on slavery, um, the age of Jim Crow, that period after slavery, um, the Harlem Renaissance, uh, also that period, uh, the civil rights movement. And then uh, because of some of the courses that were being taught, I thought we do need a separate course on African-American stereotypes. Where mm -hmm. do these images come from? How did they start in the first place? So those were the courses that I developed there at State. 
And I'd like to actually, if you wouldn't mind, like maybe dig a little bit deeper on those because that's such like amazing knowledge base. Um, specifically- I can read a history book and kind of tell you some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you even write a curriculum on, on so many <laughs> levels like that? Cooper, is that Again, kind of where now, you were this going is not, with that? This is not all overnight. These are years. No. Plus your course, you have to propose it before a committee and they have to examine it, go through it. You got to meet certain qualifications for putting it together, for justifying it. And then it gets passed and Mm -hmm. then determine whether or not it gets to be a part of the curriculum. So this was over some years that all of that stuff took place. Well, and I was reading a a piece, it was like a write-up about you um, from uh, 2011 with West Virginia culture. and, And you were saying, the difficulty um, often when, when researching Black history, maybe going back to like the 1920s and 30s is a lack of primary sources. Um, and then also maybe just the whitewashing of it, like, well, give it to credit to somebody else when actually it was someone, you know, it was an African-American that, that did it. How, how, do you enjoy that side of the work, like the actual digging and finding of resources and, and compiling it and then trying to storytell those, those facts of history? Yeah, I, I, and I do. I like the research part. I love mm-hmm. digging in and, and really, really delving and searching it out. Uh, not always successful. And some of the cases I found that uh, members of the family, after a certain person who may have been the historical figure had passed mm-hmm. away, members of the family didn't think those papers were that important. And so in some cases, they, they literally just tossed them, you know, um, rather than um, donating them to some archive of some sort. And so that's another problem that was, uh, you know, that I ran into. I found that I could find more on African-American men than I could on African-American women. Mm-hmm. And so that was my quest. And after some direction, I thought this would be a great thing to do. One of the professors and the chair of the department at West Virginia State was a Dr. C. Stewart McGee. And he he actually um, served as the head of the archives at the Bluefield Library in Bluefield. Okay. And he had run across and found this woman, Elizabeth Drury, the first African-American woman who was elected to the uh, legislature, state legislature. And he kept saying to me when he, he and I met, he kept saying, somebody needs to write on this person. Somebody needs to do this. And that per- perked my interest. And that's how I got started. It might as well be me. Hey, I'm going to do it. Yeah, it might as well be me. And he said, I don't think a white person should do it, is what he told me. He said, I really think someone African-American should do it. And I thought, oh, me, 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 I fit. You know, so. Um, yeah, I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm reading up on that. Um, like We did our little bit of research beforehand. So she was okay. one of them. And then looks like Lucille Meadows, Milford Bateman, some other women. Mildred. So, Mildred, I'm sorry. Um how maybe memphis what, garrison yeah <laughs> like this, what are this some... consumed your life yeah it did. <laughs> it did so so those those early women like they're like you said early leaders um what was what was, is there anything unique about west virginia history like i know um some of them went on to accomplish things very much so i mean they were the not only women, but black women in the 1920s and 30s doing that type of work. Um, do you, does any special story or memory call out like from all the research that you did with those women? Yes, uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee Garrison was an interesting character. Uh, she developed, uh, uh, she came up with the idea of Christmas seals for the NAACP. She was an educator in McDowell County for almost about 50 years and then spent uh, almost that same amount of years in Huntington after mm-hmm. her retirement. Uh, and um, she um, had heard, W.B. Du Bois had come to that Bluefield, McDowell County area and, and actually spoke. And she was so inspired that she decided she would order the magazine uh, uh, Crisis and that she would distribute that throughout the community. And then she ended up becoming a field secretary for the NAACP. And um, just had this way with the co-operators there who definitely were not too much in favor of the NAACP, but somehow she could present it to these co-operators in such a way that they actually gave money (laughs) to have people brought in and cultural things done for African-Americans and um, she, had, she had a way about her that was really cool to me. Uh, a staunch, staunch 
Republican, although she voted Democratic at times. I mean, you know, it was that kind of thing. Uh, uh, she uh, was always a go-getter, and I love that about her. And I loved her name because I was curious as to how did you get the name Memphis, Tennessee? And what I found out is that she had an aunt who had worked in Memphis, Tennessee, and loved the area and told her brother, her, which was uh, Garrison's father, if ever you have a daughter, name her Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> and so that's exactly what they did. And that that's works. how she got that name. Yeah. Maybe even speak about some of the other women that you studied because those four in particular, you, you like I said, consumed a large part of your life and ended up doing some incredible things and politically um, oh, yeah. you know, and social, social justice as well. Yeah, um, uh, Lucille Meadows um, was mainly in Fayette County, uh, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, and she, um, she is the one that was able to carry a block of voters. She was an educator, taught in uh, the schools, school system, uh, had experienced racism firsthand in the sense that she was born in Glen Ferris, West Virginia, which is just outside of Beckley. But she had to travel to Montgomery when she when it was time for her to go to high school because there was no other black high school for them. Even though there was a white high school about two miles from where she lived, she had to travel, you know, 25 miles, I think it was, to uh, Montgomery to attend school. Uh, taught in some of the rug, most rugged conditions. She and one teacher taught at a little school called Summerlee near Oak Hill. And um, they taught... It was a one-room classroom, <laughs> and they taught something like 50 students. Wow. One teacher would start at 8 in the morning and teach until noon, and then she would pick up at noon and go until 4 o'clock, and that's the way they did it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, She established what was called the Martin Luther King Holiday Luncheon, invited big dignitaries like uh, 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 Gaston Caperton, Bob Wise, uh, John Rockefeller, even Senator Byrd. And because they knew that this woman had enough influence in her community to carry a block of voters, they attended those luncheons. Mm -hmm. She never had a problem getting them to attend. She became very, very close to Jay and Sharon Rockefeller. And um, her daughter had given and allowed me to see a number of artifacts written, handwritten by Jay Rockefeller and even Sharon. Uh, to her because they uh, felt that close to her. And um, if she supported a Democratic uh, candidate, if she ever signed off on them, they were pretty much guaranteed to get the vote. Wow. Wow. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. And what year was that? What, what year? What era was that? That was the 19, that was, uh, well, what's the Jay Rockefeller 70s, you know, those years like that, okay. you know, coming into those years like that. Um, with reference to, um, uh, Elizabeth Drury, she was the, the first African-American to, uh, uh, to be elected, not the first one appointed. There was a Minnie Buckingham Harper was the first appointed serving out her husband's unfulfilled term. Uh, uh, but uh, Drury was the first elected. Uh, she ran twice, 46 in 1948, lost both times. But when she ran in 1950, she, she won. And she had the support at that time of United States Steel, <laughs> so wow. which was a quite frankly it was a big deal. I have yeah. a poster of her. I, I, I should have gotten it out. I don't have it out. And a friend of mine framed it for me. And you actually see the U.S. Steel seal uh, uh, <laughs> logo on the bottom of her poster, her campaign poster. Uh, so they supported her. Her first term in office. She, someone, someone from a coal company came and tried to bribe her oh on behalf of a coal company to pass legislation in their favor. She exposed it. That blew up. And it hit the front pages of Charleston, West Virginia. It was on the, uh, in the black newspapers in Chicago and Pittsburgh because she, she exposed this bribery right off the bat. First thing. They came to the um, wrong, wrong person. They came to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She said politics were played hard in McDowell County, so you had to be <laughs> tough as nails. And she always told her daughter, uh, "Don't look for anyone to put yourself uh, to put you out front. Put yourself there, because mm -hmm. no one is going to do it for you." 
Mildred Bateman, of the, of the four women that I wrote about, she was the one that I called the quiet activist. She was head of the uh, department, West Virginia State Department of Mental Health oh. um, and served there for about, about 15 years until in 1977, Governor Rockefeller merged it with the, you know, the larger state health department. Uh, but, and then she also, when Marshall University at its medical school and opened up a psychiatry oh. department, she held that position. The thing that impressed me, I had an opportunity to interview her. She, I had a chance to talk to her before she passed away. She died in 2012. Uh, so, um, and I was the only one that she allowed to interview her. Oh she gosh. let me see some of her, her personal papers and all, all this kind of a thing. So I was very honored to work with her. I don't know if it was you, I, CJ, it may have been Cooper. One of you I told that uh, when I first met her, we agreed to meet on state's campus. And when she, <laughs> I'm waiting on her to come in this little, maybe it's white, maybe it's a powder blue, you know, and, and, and just a little tiny car. She drives up in a Dodge caravan <laughs> van, <laughs> oh my God. steps out. And uh, this lady continued to work once a week at least at uh in huntington uh seeing patients wow. until she died oh she God. was 89 years old what's up guys cooper here so if you're on instagram and you follow us on instagram you would have saw me put a little story up where I said, if you're the first person to DM us this code, I'm gonna buy you something from the Mountaineer Media store. Well, the code is the Cardinal Flies at Midnight. The Cardinal Flies at Midnight. If you DM us that and you're the first person to do it, we're gonna buy you something from the Mountaineer store. And that would be on mountaineermedia.org, which you can shop right now if you so choose. Also just wanna give a quick shout out to our presenting sponsor, Mr. B. We could not do it without Mr. B and Marianne Kettleson. We greatly appreciate them as a presenting sponsor, the only chip manufactured in West Virginia. So also want to give a shout out to our bloggers. We're having some really cool blogging come out from our blog team. Um, we're tackling some complex shit. Part of my French, but we're really getting into, you know, it's not just, just like, oh, yeah, yeah, West Virginia. We're really tackling issues that we feel are going to help this state move forward, um, be a better place to live more educated you know more prosperous more forward thinking um so we just want to say thank you thank you to all of our bloggers they do tremendous work you can check them out on mountaineermedia.org you could subscribe to our newsletter on there as well and you would get the blogs in your inbox twice a month um if you also did subscribe to the newsletter you would get discount codes for merchandise you would hear latest episode updates and a lot lot more so we appreciate it as always i hope you're having a fabulous week it's been icy and snowy so hopefully you're safe and secure and warm and covid free look guys we're gonna continue to bring more and more stuff to you we appreciate you so much now let's get right back to the episode with dr lucas she's a wonderful woman we're celebrating black history month all month with our guests so let's get right to it right now thank you where did you feel like it was your role in in, in you know this is black history month obviously yeah. we should we should always it shouldn't have to be a month that we have to record right? we should always like have this in our vocabulary and society and recognize these these leaders um as human beings and leaders but your role in educating the the next generation of students about prior legends um what about that did you find that most rewarding and did you feel like students were hungry for that and were they knowledgeable about what was going on in their state or was a lot of this just like a surprise and maybe you know the first time that they maybe african-american students were even hearing it themselves uh i found that uh students were interested and mm -hmm. i found also that students did not know uh not only did they not know that much about african-americans roles in west virginia uh, but about african-americans period you know uh uh which which i thought oh my goodness this can't be uh, but that that's literally the way it was. I also found pleasantly, I was surprised, but I also found that a number of white students were interested in my courses as well. So there were many, and there were, there were times when the, the, the white students in my classes outnumbered the black students. Uh, um, and, and, and also because state is like a commuter school, mm -hmm. you ended up with more whites on the campus a lot than you did blacks. So I, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised that there would be more whites in the class than black students. 
but there they there were a lot of these things that they just didn't know. Uh, Mildred Bateman, for example, went on to become vice president of the American Psychiatric Association. So that not only put her as a great in West Virginia, but also in the larger context, in the national context. Same thing with Elizabeth Drury. She uh, ended up being recognized in Ebony Magazine as the 10 most important African-American women in government at that time in the 50s wow. and going into the 60s. Well, but who knew that? Um, yeah. Garrison was constantly in contact with and worked for the national organization, establishing NAACP branches in Southern West Virginia, in Virginia, Cincinnati, Indiana. I mean, she was everywhere as a field secretary. So these were the things, and 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 medals may not have been. Uh, well, she did. She went on to be recognized by the National Education Association, and uh, you know the American Education Association. Those things. So they they had a presence. Mm -hmm. It's just that for some reason, their presence is not known. But my argument is that I don't know how much of West Virginia's history. Period. America knows, right. and that I find to be. I can't remember which of you I was talking to, and I said that when you think about the fact that West Virginia seceded from Virginia during the time Virginia and 10 other states seceded from the Union, and you get just a small blurb in American textbooks, something is wrong with that. That's true, I guess. Like, you know, like I, I've never even thought about it like that. Yeah, we completely, like, one of the most unique states in America and it's just like oh yeah we just like left and divided and did our own thing like yeah. like who were those people that were leading that that is a good point yeah wow uh, yeah to me there there should be I don't mean take up half the book on it but you gotta give me more than a, a paragraph <laughs> give me a chapter you know right give us a chapter yeah, yeah give us a, at least two pages <laughs> so um, those are the things that but yeah I and and, and I love teaching. I, I, that's just the bottom line to it. I love teaching. I wasn't crazy about grading papers, but I love standing <laughs> up there in the classroom <laughs> teaching. And I, I love the expression on students' faces when you tell them something that just kind of opens yeah. up for Blows them. Blows the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, 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 it's, a, it's an energizer for me, you know. So, and I, and I found that sometimes, see, Students would come into the class almost like, I don't know why I'm here. Somebody told me to come in this classroom to take this history course, and I hate history. Right. That's pretty much the way they came in. Not a good start. Not a good energy to start. <laughs> Not a good start. <laughs> Day one. So my goal was to somehow, and I should tell them, I know you hate history with a purple passion. And they would always go, oh, yeah. And I said, well, the goal in this class is to get you to the point where you hate history but not with the purple passion, yeah. you know, just want to ease that down just a little bit. And then by the time I finished, it gave me great pleasure at the end of the semester when someone would say, I'm changing my major to history. You know, <laughs> uh, This was better than I thought it was going to be. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had to end up being uh, almost like a court jester. You used the term storytelling. Mm -hmm. And that's the way to me history should be taught. An unfolding of a story like, guess what? And sometimes I would say that to them, uh, in some classes, I would go, word has it. And I'd lean over the podium and they'd be like, I go, oh, well, we'll talk about it the next time in class. <laughs> they were like, word has what? <laughs> See, I but love the that. Goal was to the get teaser. Interested. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that. Because it's like, yeah, like you said, like, I think it's all, it's honestly a reflection of like the American, maybe not so much with like college level courses, but like the public education system in America where we teach history, like it's like, okay, memorize the 55 counties, memorize this and rewrite it on that. And it's like kids have like an association with history is just like a regurgitation of just like almost like meaningless facts, facts rather than having like a fabulous, you know, teach like we're captivated by your stories now, like really like enthusiastically storytelling, like we're gathered around a campfire. Let me tell you about yes. this individual who, you know, did these crazy things like that makes it so much more real. And then that instills a lesson, hopefully in students, the classic saying that, you know, we don't repeat history if we don't learn it. Exactly. Um, I think your method is uh, very, very effective, I would say. And the other thing is they did, they, they always felt like you had to learn dates. Right. And, and all through high school, that's what helped cause them to hate history. A monotone professor, they said, and learning dates, you know. Uh, and I always said to them, 
I'm not going to require you to know the years, but you ought to know that the Civil War was not fought in the 1900s. <laughs> now that much you need to know. Um, you, you know, you just can't go out here saying that, you know. And um, I also found that with students, I did what was called planned digression. With high school students or few would say things like, you don't have to if you don't want to, but personally, I'd write this down because it's going to be on the test. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah. people are sitting up. And then I'd say, well, it looks like you all are getting ready to go out. Somebody is out of the room. Somebody's getting in their car. And the other ones of you were roaming the hills of West Virginia. So physically, <laughs> you were here. So we need to do something about that. So I would do things like stop and just throw out a scandal in history that happened. And it would always be around whatever we were talking about. And then all of a sudden, they'd perk up. And then I would say, these are Jeopardy questions. Um, they're not things that's going to be on the test, but one day somebody from state's going to be on Jeopardy. And you're going to uh, do so well on Jeopardy and earn so much money that Alex Trebek is going to be so impressed. <laughs> well, he won't be now, but I said, and yeah. I'm going to say to you, my goodness, you have such a wealth of knowledge. Where did you get it? <laughs> and you're going to say, well, Alex, I attended West Virginia State University. You're going to make sure he understands it's not WVU, different school. Mm -hmm. Then once he gets that clear, you know, and if you make, uh, uh, you know, if you make fifty thousand dollars, make sure you mention the school. But now, if you start getting up to a hundred thousand dollars, you say to Alex, Alex, I attended West Virginia State University. And not only that, but I was taught by Dr. Lois Lucas. And as soon as this show is over, I'm calling her and giving her half a cut of the money. <laughs> That's what you got to do. I love it. I so love it, it. It behooves me to give you this side information <laughs> so you'll have it <laughs> when you go on Jeopardy. But I haven't seen a student on Jeopardy yet, and I still continuously watch it. <laughs> yeah. And, and you've kind of alluded to it, but how important was it that what your teachings, where your teachings took place was at West Virginia State and HBCU? Probably, I know Bluefield State is also an HBCU, um, mm -hmm. but state seems to be the one in West Virginia that is um, well-recognized in, in the larger picture because of some of the people, the characters that have crossed through that campus and, and through Institute and, and that university, but how important almost were your teachings to the greater good because it happened at a place like state? Would you have even done some of the things that you've done because you were, you know, if you were not at state? It, 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 I'll be honest with you. It wouldn't have mattered where I was teaching. I would have done the same thing. When I was teaching at Hamlet uh, Junior High School in the seventh grade, I did something along the same lines. Uh, uh, my goal was to make sure each student knew that they could learn. But I also knew that on the college level, you got to be, you got to love, but you got to be tough. So I, 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 I would all uh, come in on the first day and I would just state, here are the rules and here's, the, here's what's required. And if anyone's having a problem with it, you know, give me back the syllabus. We, it's, you know, <laughs> low budget year. We need the paper. We can recycle it. <laughs> you know, and you can leave, you know. And I would tell them, we haven't been dating long. Uh, so that way the breakup will be okay. You know, but by the time we get further down into this, somebody might get hurt. <laughs> so we don't want that. Uh, and, and that's about as tough as I would get. Those students who had me before would go, <laughs> Well, you know, uh, but the other students would be like, oh, my goodness, maybe I should get out of this class. All I was trying to do was to eliminate the, the non-serious student. Mm -hmm. I wanted people who really wanted to learn. And uh, no one had the guts to leave in front of everybody else. <laughs> you know, they stayed. And at the end of the semester, they would say to me, boy, I thought this was going to be really rough. But, <sighs> you know, this was really good. And I and and uh, I guess my bark was worse than my bite, you know. Yeah. So I I I think by being at an HBCU, it helped to reinforce the African American history classes. But I also taught women's history too, mm -hmm. uh, and that was needed as well. But it wouldn't have mattered to me where I was teaching. My 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 method and my technique 
it's the same or would have mm -hmm. been the same. Dr. Lucas, I want to get your opinion on this because you're, you know, a historian, um, you know, you're, you've been knee deep in this stuff for decades and decades because we spoke about this with Dr. Reverend, uh, or not Dr., I'm sorry, Reverend Watts, yeah, Reverend um, Watts on the podcast. We also spoke about it with Emily Calandrelli, a former guest and Crystal Good. Um, and it's the naming, it's the naming of statues and places and schools around people that if we really take a second and realize like, wait a second, those aren't people that we want to hold up. Um, because I, like, for example, I went to Stonewall Jackson middle school on Charleston's West side in, in middle school. Um, and then recently, of course, it's been renamed and, you know, I don't know when that came about when it was actually named Stonewall Jackson, but he was a Confederate, you know, he was on the wrong side of America. If you look at it that way, um, what's your opinion on that subject with, um, like tearing down statues, renaming things and really uh, like, um, that whole, I guess, um, cause that I kind of, we've seen it in the last, like maybe five years more so than ever, I think come about. Well, I, here's, here's, here's my view. I think sometimes we get it backwards in this country. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. I was reading a book just recently and uh, one of the locations that uh, uh, the author spoke on was Nazi Germany. In Germany, there's not a statue, not a sign, not a road or anything that commemorates the leaders of the Nazi party or Adolf Hitler. What the Germans have chosen to do is they have, uh, they have various stones throughout the city and throughout Europe that represent those Jews who were a part of the Holocaust and the way they suffered. There's a stone with their name on it and the last time they lived in that location. So if there was some location of a Jewish person in, I'll just say in, in England, let's say, the last place that they knew that that person lived there's a stone either in the wall of the building or in the street that commemorates that person. In Berlin, almost in the center of the city, there are these, it's almost like these obelisks, these monuments. Nothing is on them, but there are monuments for every Jewish person that was executed. Wow. And it's just there. And it's there to commemorate them. That's what I mean when I say, I think America has kind of gotten it backwards. Why are we touting those people who fought against the nation? Why are we touting them? Why are roads named after them? There's a Jefferson Davis road here in North Carolina. Why, why are we building up statues to these people as if they had done something so great? Mm -hmm. It's a contradiction to me. They did this, they fought the Civil War, they lost, but yet we're gonna somehow make them heroes. There's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. There's something wrong. It's, that's beautifully well said. What a wonderful example of how to do the opposite of what I think we do in America. Um, you know, I, I researched it. I want to say research. I, I mean, you're a historian. I read a couple articles, but like I <laughs> start giving ourselves yeah, titles here. <laughs> I, I, I looked into it and like I found, you know, that the I'm sure you would know studying women's history and African American history, the daughters of the Confederacy, how that, you know, what it, they kind of were, what exactly they sound like they were. They were probably the descendants of, you know, former Confederate yes, soldiers, whatnot. But they went on a tear of like the 1930s, 40s, 50s, erecting these types of things to emplace and you know immortalize these figures of the quote-unquote south and over time you know I, I've read that even in if you were in Alabama rural Alabama in the 1950s it was in your it was literally like they say like whitewashing history literally the textbooks would read about the civil war in a different light than was the truth yes, so you had a generation of like you know, people that are now probably in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they grew up getting that education, thinking that that was fact. So it's almost like they've been brainwashed to a sense. It's not like they're just, 
you know, it wasn't like an accident that they felt this way. They're stuck in their old ways. They were educated that way yes. from those textbooks in, in the, in those, you know, predominantly in like the rural South and West Virginia certainly falls into that. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it fascinates me because it's on a lot of different levels, but um, it's, um, it's something, it's not on the surface level. I think a lot of people get like tired of it, like, Oh, like, why are we doing that? Like, why are we renaming Stonewall Jackson? But if you stop and think about it, it's a big deal. And I, it is a big deal. It's, I, it's a worthy cause. Too, yes. And the other thing too is um, with all of this whitewashing the history, not only were white students taught the whitewashed history, but so were African-American students because they had those history books, you know, and things of that sort. Uh, the, the Southerners called it having fought for a noble cause, quote unquote. Uh, but, it, it, you know, uh, again, it's it's touting wrong, you know, to fight against your own nation. You know, it, it, I think about, I'll use something as simple as, if my brother and sister and I got into an argument or a fight together, my parents would, oh my goodness, they would come down on us. So in this sense, it's almost like brothers is, are fighting against brothers here uh, 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 to me. Uh, and all for what reason? To keep Black people enslaved. There's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the founding fathers who argued, one actually said in, I think it was the Massachusetts Assembly, that the way England is treating us, they're, they're reducing us to slaves, to the position of slaves. And I'm thinking, I, now, I, I sometimes used to say to my student, was he smoking bad weed or what when he said it? <laughs> <laughs> they had slaves. What are we talking about here? You know, so it, it, it's a contradiction. Throughout, you see these contradictions in American history to me that that I think uh, uh, serves as a negative blot in some way. I, I, and I think it's confusing, you know, to teach for years that slaves enjoyed being slaves, you know, until you started getting African-American historians and even other white historians digging further and finding out that that was not so. And there are records to prove that was not so. Right. So, you know, why are you covering it up? History is history. Let's just lay it all out there. I think it would be better. Mm -hmm. You know, in my African-American history classes, I used to say to my black and white students, listen, let's all just be honest in here. Let's just lay it out on the table, what you think and what you feel. You know, let's just be honest and get it out because that's the only way we're going to even get to trying to heal and to change anything or to even understand from each other's perspective. The goal is to be open, be honest, not feel like you're going to be attacked. Because sometimes white students felt like, if I say that, then I'm going to get pulverized in this class, mm -hmm. you know. And black students were like, here we go again with this stuff on slavery. I'm so sick of it, you know. And I told them the goal is for us to be able to be open and honest with one another and really leave with the same, same amount of hair we had when we came in. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. Yeah. So. Do you, do you think, I think you could almost make this assumption for every problem that we always have that the next generation will fix it, the, the kids will fix it, or maybe it'll be better by then. Do you think that, are we moving in a direction to where maybe open and honest conversations will be the new norm? Or, or are we still kind of stuck in this, this mold of, okay, we can't quite get over that hump quite yet because obviously there, there are still plenty of issues that are plaguing this country not COVID related um, yeah. but you know racial and social injustices that are still taking place in this country. I think in pockets small pockets we, we we're trying to get there but overall I think we still have a long way to go. Um, the book club that I told you it really wasn't we didn't call it a book club but it kind of ended up being like that uh, that I just finished uh, on the 9th of February uh, was made up of black and white women. And it was a pretty open and honest discussion, excuse me, <coughs> that um, we actually had. And uh, we had a lady from Alabama. We had a woman from um, New York. Uh, 
uh, in the, uh, on the kind of ritzy side of New York. She grew up uh, well-to-do. Uh, we had um, people from the rural South, people from the uh, Midwestern state, Indiana. You, you know, so it was like a good mix of women. And it was really interesting to hear everyone's perspective uh, on um, what they felt about race uh, and what they thought. And, um, and, and in some cases, the white women didn't, um, they didn't see quite what we were trying to say. And in some cases, we were trying to understand what they were trying to say. In the end, um, what happened is one of the women said, I've heard the stories of you black women and it, they really have touched me because we talked about our own experiences with racism and, and they said that that really touched them. And, and we all agreed that it was beneficial for us to have come together and we've agreed to keep it going. Wow. Now that's a small pocket. Um, I don't know, it's gonna take a while for it to become on a larger scale. And what I find is this, people have to be willing to listen to the other person, white or black or Native American, Hispanic, uh, Asian American. We have to be willing to sit and listen. And, and sitting and listening doesn't mean trying to justify your position. It means to sit and listen. I think we have to be open and honest without feeling like I better watch my back before, you know, by the time I leave this room or I may be you know, attacked in yeah. some way. Mm -hmm. We have to be willing to do that. And until, the, until we are willing to do that, we're still gonna be at odds with one another. Yeah. Well, Dr. Lucas, I thank you very much for taking some time out of your day and, and uh, spending it with us and, and talking about everything under the sun from uh, <laughs> the weather to uh, your, your teaching of, uh, you know, studies at, at West Virginia State and obviously looking forward here too to close this up. But Dr. Lucas, thank you very much. We're honored to have had you on. Hope all is well and we hope you get the get your walk in tomorrow. I, I hope so. And thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it, it was very humbling to be called. Uh, I love my colleagues at State. I miss them. I, I, um, say hello to Dr. Wallace for me. We cast it on. Yeah, and to the history department for me, please, and social sciences, and business, because I was in that school, social sciences and business. Uh, I, I, I have a great deal of respect for the people at State. I really do. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Okay, everybody, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you again, Dr. Lucas, for taking some time to speak with us today. Everyone, thank you for making it this far. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Lucas. Hey, make sure to head over to the website, mountaineermedia.org. Make sure to check out the shop, the blog page. We were just talking about Sierra's blog. That is up, and that entire series will be up on the site later really by the end of the week so make sure to check that out everything else out going on on the website as well and make sure to stick with us right here on the mountaineer media podcast